Welcome to the Together for Good podcast, a podcast specifically designed to inspire, challenge, and uplift you during your daily walk of faith. Today's episode is a continuation of our series on the first four chapters of Genesis. This is a look at Genesis chapter 3, really famous story, uh, often called The Fall. It's Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit and the serpent. You might know it from a children's Bible or somewhere similar like that. But we're going to get into the nitty-gritty details today. Really hope you enjoy it. As always, thanks for listening. Please uh, share this podcast with family and friends. You can post the link to this episode on your social media channels. um, Or just hop on to iTunes and leave us a review and a rating. All of that helps other people discover the podcast. And we're just so excited about the growing community we have here. But now, here is a Bible study on Genesis chapter 3. Hello, loyal podcast listeners. We are continuing our series on the first four chapters of Genesis. And we are really getting into the heart of it today. Genesis chapter 3 is our focus. And this is often referred to as the story of the fall. A story of the first disobedience from humans. And I'm really excited to go through this with you because this story, I think, often gets twisted and interpreted in ways that aren't helpful. Uh, and it talks a lot about, people often use this to talk about original sin and how the sin of Adam and Eve continues to be a stain upon our existence. And and we're going to get into some of the details of this passage. It's it's funny because it th- th- there's an element of truth to that, to this idea of the original sinfulness and and I'll I'll highlight that for you. But I'm guessing it's not what you're thinking. And additionally, while this does talk about how Adam and Eve, you know, their first big mistake, um and it's a mistake that we all as humans continue to make, in the same sense, this is also the story of how God Um, loves us and blesses us and cares for us even despite our disobedience. Um, So hopefully that primes the tank for you and gets you interested. Let's just get right into it because this is a cool story and there's a lot to dig into here. And and as always, we're looking at these first stories from Genesis because we want to be looking at and thinking about uh, our, our origin story. Who has God created us to be? Marvel is coming out with the origin stories of every single comic book character ever, it seems, and making lots and lots of money creating shows for the Disney Channel um, to that effect. But we as people of faith, I think it is helpful every now and then to look back at what it says within the scriptures about where this world came from, what those first humans were like, and to realize that, yeah, things aren't exactly the same anymore, but there's so much wisdom to be gained uh, and direction for our life as we think about how these words of scripture can uh, affect us moving forward and give us guidance for the decisions we make and the way we carry ourselves in this world. So let's get started. We are going to be reading all of Genesis chapter 3. So here we go, verse by verse. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? So here... Notice what we actually heard, and then also we're going to notice what we didn't hear. The serpent is described as a crafty, wild animal, and that means that this is an animal that God created. And this animal apparently can talk. That's weird, not something um, we're typically used to. But you know what it doesn't say at any point here or later on in this chapter? It doesn't say that the serpent is Satan. That 
or that it is a snake, or that it is evil. It simply says crafty. And we've attached a lot to it because there's so much tied up in all of the events that are to follow and what the serpent kind of launches into motion. And so we often talk about how, that, oh, that was Satan tempting Adam and Eve in order to lead them astray. That's not really what the scripture says. <laughs> in, in particular, the word crafty that's used here in Hebrew is very similar to the word naked. And so the author's suggesting that human beings are being exposed here to the shrewd and crafty elements of God's creation. Humans are the ones that have the choice. The crafty serpent simply represents the things in this world that present us with the option for disobeying God. Now that might not seem like much, but I think it's really important. Oftentimes, I mean, you know, we, we, we can fall into the trap of just saying like, oh, the devil made me do it. Like, okay. Yes, there are like forces of evil at work in our hearts and in the world, but we also have to claim personal responsibility and recognize and confess our sins. Yeah, maybe you were tempted, maybe you were drawn off course, but if you're constantly passing the buck, you're never going to take responsibility for the poor choices you made. And that's how this is being set up here in Genesis 3, is the author is really wanting us to see by using that word crafty, right? Which again is so connected to the Hebrew word naked. They're very similar. The human beings are being exposed to the difficult parts of this world. Up until this point in the book of Genesis, we've only heard about all the good stuff and the very good stuff that God created. And now the author is acknowledging that, you know what, there's also some crafty elements and humans are going to be left with a choice of how they're going to respond to the crafty aspects of God's creation. The other piece um, to mention is, you know, the, the, the way that it's written, the, the serpent said to the woman, did God send, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? Uh, the word you here uh, in the original biblical languages is in the plural. It's a plural you, you and yous, y'all. Um, and so it is implying that Adam is present as well. Adam is standing right here. You know, maybe the serpent originally addresses the woman, but Adam is not far away and he's hearing all of this. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But let's let's move on um, to verses two and three. And so the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. Okay, so the serpent asks the woman this question. And, and again, the serpent's question was really innocent. <laughs> you shall not eat. What, did God really say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And so the woman clarifies, yeah, we can eat from the trees. We just can't eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. We can't touch that tree either because if we do, we will die. Now, this is the first moment in the Bible when death is mentioned. Death hasn't been mentioned at all yet, but apparently it must have been something that Adam and Eve were talking about. And so the woman here is exaggerating. God never said that they would die if they ate from that tree, but it seems to suggest that she's very concerned about disobeying God and very concerned about death in particular. 
Actually, I need to I need to correct myself there. What God never said is that they, the people can't eat from any of the trees in the garden. God did say, like, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall die. That's in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. And we'll get to that piece a little bit more later. But yeah, Eve is kind of clarifying here, you know, and, and really making it clear, but also showing that she's concerned about this, about disobeying God and death in particular. So let's move along and see what it says in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. You, the serpent says, will get to be the one that chooses what is good and what is evil. And isn't that exactly what's happening here? God has said not to eat the tr- from the tree, and the man and the woman choose to eat of it anyway. Spoiler alert, that's what's going to happen. You see, this story is all about our human ego. That's part of the craftiness of God's creation, is that we will continually fall prey to thinking that we are the ones that created the heavens and the earth, that we are the ones that get to be in control and decide exactly how everything should or shouldn't be, that we get to say what is good and what is evil. You've heard me say this a lot, but I think that all of our Christian faith can be summarized by simply saying God is God and we are not. And to constantly keep that in our memory. And we see it right here with this first temptation. That's what the temptation was. That you will be like God, knowing and establishing what's good and what's evil. See, and point out again, the serpent isn't lying at any point in time. The humans actually don't die when they eat the fruit. Again, spoiler alert, we're going to hear that in a little bit. The humans don't die, though, but they are changed. The very act of eating the fruit, they become like God in the sense that they start to make statements about what is good and what is evil. Even though God has told them that this isn't the way that it should be. Right. God even says, like, don't eat. God doesn't want this for the humans to go down this path. Okay, let's keep going and let's see what happens in verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Okay, remember I told you that way back in verse 2 that the word you was in the plural? Right, because Adam's standing right there. You know, she took the fruit who was right there and she gave it to her husband. Okay, but the other part about all this is the, the, the sheer temptation of it. The fruit was a delight to the eye and it looked good for food. Um, and it was desired to be make one wise. Because that is the real issue here too, is that within this crafty creation that we exist in, sometimes things that seem really good are not the best for us. In particular, chasing after and, and being the one who says what's good and evil. That might seem like a delight to the eyes, like it's good and that we, you know, we'll get to be wise because of it. But that is not the case, right? We have to keep always in our minds that God is God and that we are not and that we need to let God be in control, that we can't be making it all about ourselves. Even though at times that temptation will be so strong, that's not God's hope or God's will. And so notice too, that the woman does not even speak. She doesn't 
consider God's prohibition. She just focuses on the good parts of it that the tree offers. Oh, it's good for food. It's pleasing to the eye. And she is declaring it good. Do you see what's happening here? She's the one that's now saying, oh, this is good. Even though God has said the opposite. And that's so often the difficulty of our human existence, that tension that we constantly live with. And then, you know, the woman goes on and gives it to her husband because, again, as I said, she's standing, right? He's standing there the whole time. And notice he doesn't even think about it. He doesn't help remind anyone of what God originally says. He's only focused on, oh, like, well, Eve says this is good and I think it's good, so it must be good. And they press forward. Okay, now here's what happens next. Verse 7. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. So the action of eating the fruit, the action of being able to decide what is good and what is evil, this is the first act of playing God. It opens their eyes and they now see their nakedness as something shameful. And they see the act of being in God's presence as something fearful. God never made any of those decrees. That's not how God created the earth. But the humans make these decrees right after eating from the knowledge of good and evil. They eat from the tree, and now they are able to make statements like that, of this is good and this is bad. At the end of Genesis chapter 2, the last line, Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And now we get that as soon as they take it upon themselves to decide what is good and what is evil, they feel shame and they hide from God. Okay, so now here's what happens next. This is great. Verse 8 and verse 9. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? So they're playing hide and seek in the garden of Eden. Yeah. And I just thought like God's just walking around the garden. Apparently that's the way it used to be. But notice, right? Like what's powerful about this imagery though, God comes down to be with them. God walks in the garden and looks and seeks out the humans that God loves. And so they might feel shame, but God doesn't feel that shame for them or that disappointment. God is simply looking for them. It calls to mind the imagery of the lost sheep or the lost coin or the prodigal son of this, you know, that God is the one seeking us out, trying to draw us home. Now here's what happens next in verse 10. Where are you, God said, and the man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you been eating from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? You see, in our lifetime, we often hide because we are afraid or ashamed That's exactly why the man is hiding now. And God immediately replies, who told you? Because those statements, those are statements that only God can make. And yet somehow the humans are stating what is good, what is evil or shameful or fearful. 
God can tell just by that simple statement of the man that they had eaten from the tree and that they had developed this knowledge of good and evil that they were trying to become gods, even though God had created all of existence and claimed it to be good. Now the humans had eaten of the tree, and this is the fall, as they talk about, this loss of innocence, this changing of the circumstances. And what is going to happen with all this? Here's what happens next. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent tricked me and I ate it. So the man passes the blame and says like, well, it was the woman's fault. And frankly, this wouldn't have even happened if you hadn't given me the woman to be here with me in the first place. And so then God turns to the woman and the woman's like, oh, it wasn't my fault. The serpent did it. Isn't that case, right? We always are trying to pass the blame. We talked about that earlier too, that we get into these circumstances where we try and push it off on someone else, not taking personal responsibility for the decisions that we make. Not it's the same as passing it on. The devil made me do it. Like okay, but you also have to acknowledge. In, in the Lutheran tradition, we're really big on the the act of confessing our sins, and I love that we put an emphasis on that at the beginning of our worship services. That that it is a chance and an opportunity to take personal responsibility for the mistakes that you've made, because that really is the first step of healing and, and setting off in a different direction is recognizing what you've, done, what you've done wrong so that you can do something different in the future. Let's keep going. I'm going to read a chunk of verses for you here. This is 14 onward. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman, God said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children, yet your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to the man, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it, you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Okay, so God is pretty ticked off. And God lobs this incredible judgment upon the man and the woman and the serpent because all of them are complicit in this tragedy that's happened for the sake of all creation. Okay? And notice that what God is doing is God is establishing a lot of these these circumstances as different um rivals, right? That, that, that the, the serpent and the woman and the children will all kind of be at odds with one another. And in those days too, I'm sure when this was originally written down by the people, um, whenever that would have been, that snakes were a real 
uh, a fear factor, a, a real problem within the community. People would die if they were bitten on the heel by the snakes. And so that's maybe part, oftentimes within scripture, there might be little moments like this. Uh, perhaps this is exactly the way that God said it, but also perhaps that the authors included some of these pieces in to help better explain why the world is the way that it is, right? Like, wow, we are always having problems with snakes. Maybe that was because of the judgment that God lobbed against Adam and Eve back in the day. You get the idea. Sometimes the authors will do that. It's hard to know one piece from the other, but it is part of the creation of the scripture process. But getting back to the point, notice that these judgments, right? The relationship between man and woman and animal and the earth are all complicated by this one act of disobedience. And the sentence touches every aspect of human life, right? In those five verses I just read you, there's there's talk about marriage and sexuality and birth and death and work and food and the human and the non-human. All of it is there. And so the main point with all of this is that playing God, right? When When you think that you get to decide what is good and what is evil, it has wide-reaching all-encompassing negative effects. It touches every aspect of human life. These lines also in this particular passage provide explanation, like I said, for why things are the way they are. It's called etymology, right? Why things are the way they are, the etymology of snakes and and the, the rivalry with humans, the etymology of childbirth and why it's so painful, the etymology of thorny bushes in the fields and why farming is difficult and yet necessary. It's all included within there. And so it's it's a part of our existence now. That's the other piece is that God maybe created the world to be different, but now this is the set of circumstances that we are still living within. And every time that someone tries to play God, well, yeah, it has far-reaching, all-encompassing negative effects on so many aspects of life. Let's keep going. Verse 20. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Okay, crazy, right? It's just random that that gets put right in there in this story. Did you notice though? I've been referring to them as Adam and Eve, but this is the first time that we actually get a name. (laughs) Up until that point, the woman did not have a name at all. But okay, her name is Eve and she is the mother of all the living. But that also, as I've been saying, draws to mind that This whole circumstance that Eve was a part of, yeah, it has effects for all the living. It has wide-reaching generational impact in terms of how we live and move in the world. This is the circumstance. This is the human predicament of thinking that we're God and having that just to destroy so much again and again. Keep going, verse 21 and 22. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife and clothed them. And then the Lord God said, See, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now... He might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he had taken. So God gives them clothes here in verse 21, which is a really compassionate uh, response. In fact, what God is doing is God is working with their sinfulness. It's their sinfulness that caused them to feel naked and ashamed, right? Before that, it says that they were naked and unashamed very clearly in chapter two. But God works with this like, okay, like I, God is always compassionate. God provides a reassuring presence despite their disobedience. What a comforting thought that God will provide us also with a reassuring presence despite our constant disobedience. 
And notice also that God doesn't take away the place where their bad decisions have brought them. But God instead works with them in that moment. And I think that's how it constantly is with us too. It's not like God snapped, you know, God's fingers like, all right, well, let's just reverse that. Pretend like that never happened. Okay, don't eat the fruit this time. Go. No, like God's like, okay, like now we have to work with this. And it's the same with us too. I I, I constantly think about um, that. I just think that that's how God sees us, right? Like we make dumb mistakes, we make dumb decisions and God like, "Ah." you know what though? I, I can work with this. I can work with this. I really think that that's how God deals with us each and every day, um, kind of improvising with the messes we get ourselves into. And so they are banished from the garden, right? Just get out of town. And it's so that they won't eat from the tree of life. There was still this possibility, it seems, of living forever. And because of that, God had to avoid it because their eternal life would have been a life of shame. And that is not the eternal life that God wants for us. Additionally, in this moment, God eliminates the possibility of humans ever attaining eternal life themselves. The way that God says it here is so particular. The Lord God said, see, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat it and live forever. God's concerned with this again because the man is riddled with with shame at this point in time. That's not the eternal life God has in store. And God is eliminating the possibility that the man would reach out his hand and take from the tree of life. That he would be the one to play God and obtain eternal life all on his own. That's not the plan that God has either. We do not achieve or attain eternal life ourselves. Additionally, the eternal life that we have been promised is a gift from God. And there's a really key point. The eternal life that Jesus brought about includes the forgiveness of sins. We always put those two together. Jesus died and rose again so that our sins might be forgiven so that we might have eternal life. It always gets encompassed together and we can gloss over that so quickly. But as we read this story, we realize how essential that is. It won't be an eternal life filled with shame. Because God forgives our sins first. It will be an eternal life in the way that God had always planned it. And it comes as a free eternal gift from God, not something that we reach out and claim for ourselves. Okay, one more verse for us. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. And so the man and his wife are sent out of the garden, but with a purpose, to work with God's creation. Even though they themselves have attempted to become like God and to know good and evil for themselves, there's still potential for working with God for good and advancement. And so that's the subtle difference. We are not called to say what is good and what is evil. We are called to trust in God and to work together with God for the goodness of all creation. Pretty cool, huh? I I just love this story. As you can see, there's so much in there. I, I say that every single week, but 
I hope you enjoyed it. I hope this was interesting and gives you a new perspective. There's just some subtle differences to when we read it closely that I think really changed the way we think about this story. And and it is. It's a story of compassion still, about God's compassion for us and, and working with us despite our sinfulness and despite our mistakes. And, and that, you know, the, we talk about it as the fall of humanity, as this original sin. Um, and I think there's there's a piece to that that's very wise. There's definitely a piece to that also that's extremely unhelpful. But just to sense and to recognize that, yeah, one of the biggest human struggles that seems to just live at the core of our being is this sense of believing that we don't need God, that we can live without God, that we can be the ones to decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. As I've said dozens of times throughout this podcast, that is always what leads to incredible destruction in our world. That is not God's hope. God wants us to trust in the way that God, to trust in the goodness of creation, to trust in God's will for this world, and to work together with God to bring about the goodness of all creation. It's fun. Hope that was interesting. Hope you learned something new. Uh, Join us next week as we finish off this series looking at Genesis chapter four. Yeah, what happens once they're outside the garden? What's the next generation going to act like after Adam and Eve? Well, stay tuned. That's also a deep, rich, really interesting story that I can't wait to share with you. As always, thank you for listening, for your support of the podcast. Please, hey, you're off on vacation. Continue to listen. Tell your family and friends, those people you haven't seen in a while. Let them know uh, that, yeah, your church has a podcast, and that's one way that you stay connected to your faith throughout the week or when you can't be in church on Sunday because you're gallivanting throughout the country. Whatever the case may be, um, we love the support. We love having new listeners. Thanks for listening, everybody. Stay in peace.